This morning we're in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 24, so please turn in your Bibles there to Acts chapter 24. To those who are watching on YouTube or Facebook, welcome. Good morning. Um, and in uh, the title of this morning's message is the Christian and false accusations. The Christian and false accusations. So Acts chapter twenty-four, in verse one, let's read. It says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude." But to detain you no further, I I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing of over this time of study, Lord, of getting into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bring whatever it is that you desire to the surface. Lord, that by your spirit, Lord, you would minister to us. You would give us clarity of understanding Lord, that you would let your voice be loud in us individually and as a church. Lord, may your grace and your mercy and yet your sovereignty, Lord, be well known and seen in what we cover this morning. It's all to your glory, Lord. We ask simply that you would speak to us and Lord, we give you our hearts and our time and our attention right now. May there be no distractions, Lord. May, there, may we not allow our thoughts to wander. Lord, may we be disciplined in this time of worship as we sit at your feet. And Lord, as, as we desire to hear from you, Lord, may we be those people who are willing vessels open to whatever it is that you have for us this morning. We thank you, Father, and we commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today, if you raise your voice against abortion, which, by the way, as of now, over 62,500,000 babies since 1973 have been murdered in the name of legal abortion in the U.S., If you raise your voice against that, you will be scorned by most people. Today, if you voice your stance on justice, ethics, 
morality, homosexuality, politics, and other subjects from a biblical viewpoint. As long as you don't twist it. As long as you don't manipulate scripture to fit your own agenda. You are very likely to be labeled as narrow-minded, quote-unquote, stuck in the past, irrelevant, politically dangerous, a revolutionary that stands against America and human advancement, and maybe even labeled a domestic terrorist who needs to be silenced and even locked up, or worse. I am so glad that we have men like Paul, like James, like Peter, like Philip, like Stephen, who stood, who did not back down. They did not retract. They did not bow down to anyone around them. They spoke the truth, come what may. As we read through this chapter, chapter 24, and see what it says, we understand that Paul did not fear anyone but God. And he spoke the truth wherever he went. But he was far from being any of those things that he was accused of. Remember that Jesus was accused of being an insurrectionist himself. And yet wasn't that far from the truth? What is true yesterday is true today, and it's true forever. Paul wasn't narrow-minded, but heavenly-minded. He wasn't stuck in the past, but so in the moment that he relied on the Holy Spirit and God's eternal word to speak to the moment and speak of a future that was full of hope, only found in Jesus Christ. He wasn't irrelevant, politically dangerous, or a revolutionary that stood against Israel or Rome, but one who, if listened to, would spread a hope and a freedom that all would benefit from, even the country as a whole. Their faith in Jesus Christ would actually unite them and make them stronger as a whole. Funny how God's word is not irrelevant. It's very applicable to today, isn't it? Interesting, I don't have to make any parallels for God to speak to today. I, I don't have to do it personally. I can simply just point to it. And it applies to today, like, amazingly well. All of this is nothing new that we will see in this chapter. False accusations against God and his people. False promotion of unity by the world. When in reality, those in charge are oftentimes drunk with power. And what they really want is more power and more authority to subject others under. And they desire to silence the opposition at any cost, as we will see this morning with Paul. Paul will be falsely accused. 
the truth will be overlooked. Paul will be kept in prison for two years here in Caesarea. But one thing that he will do is he will continue to speak the truth. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, as Christians, we should never, ever, ever, ever be afraid of speaking the truth, of telling others the way to God through Jesus alone, of knowing salvation and making it known. Paul was indeed on a mission. He continued on mission. He stayed on mission. But it wasn't a political campaign, and it was not a national revolutionary campaign that he had before him. Although all of that would be taken care of, I tell you, if the world turned to Jesus Christ, it would look completely different. Talk about revolutionary. The world would be turned right side up, not upside down. Like Jesus' disciples were accused of. Oh, they're turning the world upside down. No, 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 they're turning the world right side up in the name of Christ. Paul's campaign was a campaign of spreading the news of eternal salvation. Who would lend an ear to him? God's offer of grace through faith in Jesus Christ to all who would lend an ear to him. But there's the enemy and his little minions that didn't like that. The Christian and false accusations. Christians will always be falsely accused. Don't think that it's going to be any different at any time here in the near future. It's just that's the way it is. Christians will always be falsely accused when insisting on the truth. If you want to not be persecuted, opposed by the world, just go ahead and compromise. Go ahead and just go along to get along. And the moment that you are not falsely accused or persecuted is the moment you might want to wonder if you're not on the wrong side. You see, the truth transcends politics. It transcends finance. It transcends any human power or intellect. Even America and the world. Paul knew this well. I pray that we would know it well. You see, he was a Christ follower. Falsely accused, but he persevered. At any and all costs. He stood on and in the truth of God's word. And that's what I pray that we are strengthened in and by and through. That we ourselves would be that very Christ follower. That just simply does not move. Regardless of any persecution, opposition, any kind of censorship that is attempted on us that we raise our voices even louder. Remember, I always talk about 
I look to the Apostle Paul because I, I, and I refer to him as a bulldog of Christianity. A, a man who would bear down even more. Like he would be struck and he would pop back up. They would push and he would go down lower. Like that football player on the line. Prepared for a hit, for a push. That's how we ought to be. Fellow brothers and sisters, that's exactly how we ought to be. Not pushed over, but as they push, we ought to be well-grounded and so much so that we lose no ground. And we little by little, as God gives us strength and is our strength, we continue to advance in spite of the opposition that we encounter. Oh, I pray and I hope that through this morning you will be encouraged, you will be built up. I hope that you'll see some things here that perhaps parallel what we're experiencing even today. I think we can see it more clearly than ever before. False accusations. Let me say this, it's an empty word. An empty word. Again, verse 1. Let's go back and go through these verses. And after five days, a high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. False accusations, that's what they were. That's all they were. Emptiness, vanity. Something that in the eyes of the Lord laughs. Because although they try and mock God, God is not mocked. After five days of Paul being in Caesarea, Ananias and the elders from Jerusalem brought this lawyer with them to represent them named Tertullus. He was the one that was to state their case before Felix the governor and against Paul. Now, just because they made the effort to come to Caesarea, their very presence in Caesarea, the fact that it was the high priest, the elders, and this probably very prominent lawyer came to Caesarea meant absolutely nothing. And it wasn't evidence of proof of their right standing against Paul. So sometimes, you know, it's just this prestige and position, you know, Hey, you know, it must mean something if they're sending so-and-so over to prove this case. Mm, No, not really. It might just be a show. Good marketing. But means actually it's empty. 
It's a shell. Effort has never been something that fails the enemy. Think about that. But perhaps it has failed the righteous. That's why I want to encourage you. The enemy does not sleep. Think about this. The righteous should never give up. We should be vigilant. We should be really sensitive to the schemes and the plans of the enemy. We should know them well. After a while of reading through God's word, of studying God's word, of experiencing things in our own lives, we know them to be true. We know that the enemy crouches at the door as we're tempted to sin. Sometimes unaware because we fail to heed God's word, to be prepared, to be vigilant. And we allow the enemy to creep in and devour. That's our problem. And I tell you, church, be vigilant. Because effort does not fail the enemy, but perhaps at times and in many ways it fails the righteous. Galatians 6, 9, that's why the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We simply don't give up. I remember writing this down a year ago. What happens? What, I wonder what will happen if I just don't give up. Well, God's word says that we'll reap. What will we reap? Well, it's to God's glory. We stay steadfast in him. We remain immovable in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, should we take a rest from serving the Lord, working? No, because it says here, as I read, maybe in your Bible it says something different. You let me know. I don't think so. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Of the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. It'd be good to memorize that one. First Corinthians fifteen, fifty-eight. And just over and over, just allow the Lord to, to, to help you meditate on that and to apply it. Well, Tertullus was there to state their case against Paul, and as he was summoned to appear before Felix, he began with great words of flattery. That's what they were. They were flattering words. Oh, Felix, you're so wonderful. But here's a little background on Felix. Or, or uh, yeah, on Felix, on this man that um, Tertullus was addressing in regards to this case against the Apostle Paul. This was a man who was, as a child, a slave. And yet, he was delivered from slavery. He really rode in on the coattails of his brother who was favored by Rome. And it was in that manner that he came to being a man of authority and power. But it's interesting because he wasn't a man of compassion. Even though he came from that background, he was not, he was far from a man of compassion. 
He was actually known to be a cruel man who ruled with violence and fear, even having thousands of Jews murdered in Caesarea and Jewish homes raided and destroyed by Roman soldiers. What a way to rule, huh? What a way of taking your past and being compassionate because of that towards others. Zero. Zero compassion. This was Felix. This was hardly a man of peace who had won the gratitude of the people because of his quote-unquote reforms. Oh, Felix, you're so wonderful. Your reforms have been received so well and have helped the people immensely. Flattery. Flattery is actually something very dangerous, and it is telling of the person speaking them. Jude one sixteen says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Listen to this, verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The na- Don't be naive. Don't be ignorant of the word. Don't be ignorant of these things. Don't be caught naive. Be naive. Be well-versed. That's why I encourage you, always study. Read the Word of God. Study it. Know it. Apply it. And when the false comes, oh, you'll be able to pick it up just like that. May God give us discernment and to detect, to detect those things that are false and make sure that we're applying the truth in our own lives. Well, Tertullus went on to state the accusations the high priest and the elders had against the Apostle Paul, which were empty. And he lines them out in verses 5 through 8. One of the things that I want to point out is that they called Paul a plague. A plague. A plague spreads and brings death. A plague needs to be contained and eradicated. Think about this, just a plague. A plague is unwelcome by all and should be rejected by all. This was a picture that Tertullus was trying to paint in the mind of Felix, the governor. He's a plague. Remember, plagues spread and they bring death. Plagues, they need to be contained and eradicated. Uh, They're unwelcomed by all and should be rejected by all. Wouldn't you agree, Governor Felix? In fact, a plague demands the compliance of all to get rid of it. Would you comply? Would you agree with that? Your honor, Felix. Why is Paul called a plague? Well, he gives a reason why he's called a plague. Because he said that Paul, he's a plague. He spreads and starts up riots everywhere. Among all the Jewish people. Everywhere. In fact, 
he spreads these, he starts these riots everywhere in the world. Everywhere. He incites them. He's the one that starts them up. He's the ringleader of this, of this sect called the Nazarenes. This is what he was being accused of. Again, just nothing new. Now, we, we need to understand, Nazareth did not have a good reputation. So this was, again, something that Tertullus was bringing to the attention of Felix, because Felix even knew um, the reputation of, of Nazareth. You know, this is why Nathiel responded to Philip when he told him that he had found the Messiah and told him that Jesus was the son of Joseph and had found him in Nazareth, saying, he replied to Philip, saying in John one forty six, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. There's this reputation that Nazareth had, not a good one. And I, I won't mention certain areas, but there's certain areas that we know can anything good come out of that area? Maybe we'll come and see, right? There had been other insurrections. That was true. But they were trying to pin this on Paul. They were trying to convince Felix by an unfounded accusation and an empty statement that Paul was one, two. He was an insurrectionist. But was there any evidence to prove it? The answer is no. Second accusation. Oh, Paul tried to profane the temple. This is interesting because you look at the language. It says he tried to profane profane the temple. It's interesting. So either he's guilty of or not. You see how the enemy can be very subtle. Put certain pictures in your mind. It's like, well, you come with these allegations and they're so serious that you wanted to kill this man. And you're saying he tried? He he tried to profane the temple and obviously he failed because uh, to try is not to do, right? Not to accomplish, not to fulfill. This was nothing more than a rumor and it was not true. But of course, they didn't care. They wanted Paul silenced, you see, and they would use any means necessary to do so. In verses 6 to verse 7, by the way, which is not found in the ESV, because it was not found in earlier manuscripts. And there's always these footnotes that help, uh, help us understand why it is that certain things are the way they are. In verse 7, says that they would have judged him according to their law. But it was your tribune that had saved him. Or they were implying prevented us from following through with taking care of this. They were prevented from following through with their own form of justice is what they were saying. And this could have all been taken care of, Felix, without wasting your time, your precious time if the tribune would have only allowed us to follow through with what we were doing. But remember that Paul was being beaten by a mob, hardly justice, hardly the picture of sound justice and the right application of God's law. 
It wasn't even tried. Um, witnesses weren't brought forth. Nothing at all. Paul hadn't been heard. And there were no real witnesses to what he was being accused of. Now, that was all for Tertullus's argument. It was weak to say the least. It was really weak. But he thought, well, that's all he had. That's all he had to go on. That was it. But he thought perhaps if Felix would cross-examine him, that maybe Paul would incriminate himself and would say something that would prove what they were saying. Remember who the accuser of the brethren is according to Revelation 12.10. It is Satan. And he does persevere in doing so. He continues. He just pushes forward. 1 John 1.9. Apply that. And then get up and continue. Because you will be accused. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It isn't a license to sin freely and then ask for forgiveness later. But it's actually something to apply when we do realize that we've fallen short of God's standard, his word. And we do ask him for forgiveness. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't easily give up just because it's hard to stand in truth. Stand nonetheless. But then the Apostle Paul speaks the truth, and it's a right or righteous defense. Verse 10 says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Verse 16, So I, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul's defense. It was short and to the point, wasn't it? It wasn't long, it wasn't flowery. He didn't flatter the governor. Not at all. He was happy that he was given the opportunity to make a defense on his own behalf. So he does. He speaks up, he defends himself, and really, by his own words, and by the evidence 
that is before them, which is nothing, no witnesses, no nothing, proves that their accusations are false and empty. There's just something to say about logic. The church should really look at the evidence as a whole. You should never accept the allegations or accusations of one person against, uh, you know, as the Bible says, against the elders of the church. I think oftentimes that's what we look at and we run with it. And we have these rumors that spread and undermine the very work of the Lord in that fellowship. We should reason. We should think. Right? We should apply the word of God. They had nothing. He worked it out. He says, you know what? It's just been 12 days. It's just been 12 days since I've gone to worship in Jerusalem. So you think in those 12 days, it's so recent that I went to Jerusalem to worship. That you might find one or two witnesses that they could bring. At least. Maybe, maybe even more. Think about this. If this is so serious, if this is something that is true, then they had, in fact, they had some days to even gather up some witnesses to bring with them. You know how many witnesses they had? Zero. That's what Paul was telling them. Paul was not disputing with anyone. He told them, I wasn't disputing in the synagogue, I wasn't disputing at the temple. I, I wasn't disputing anywhere in the city, nowhere. They didn't find me disputing with anyone. And in fact, they didn't find me stirring up the crowd. I wasn't stirring up any crowd. Nowhere, no place. It was all unfounded, and they were spinning a lie to shut him up. But then in verse 14... I can just imagine Tertullus, Ananias, and the elders, at the moment he said this, their ears perked up. But this I confess to you. What's he going to confess to? Here it is. I knew it. He was going to self-incriminate. Here it comes. Oh, I, I confess that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust? There is. That's what he confessed to. In worshiping God and observing the law as it is written having hope in God, and will be realized in the resurrection, fulfilled, completed. That's what he confessed to. Paul points out who his false accusers were originally, who actually incited a riot, but they are nowhere to be seen. Perhaps they should be here, but they're not here either, are they, Governor Felix? They're, they're not. You're nowhere to be seen. And they definitely weren't there to serve as witnesses of these false allegations. 
But that's the way it always is with those who accuse falsely. They'll state their false accusations to try and fool others into believing these false accusations against God's servants, but are actually cowards because they can't bring anyone with them to serve as witnesses of what they are saying. You can't have a conversation with them because, you know, I've in, in counseling, oftentimes in speaking with people, you know, I'm, I'm not for or against. I am for the truth, for God's word. I'll apply to God's word. If you can't reason with God's word, then you're not coming against me. You're going against the word of God. Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, I, I may make you mad, but it's not me making you mad. It's because you won't yield to the authority of God's word. You're frustrated. You're like, feel like that, that's not me. That really isn't me. I'm just saying there's God's word. That's what's true. It's immovable. It'll never change. There it is. When confronted with the truth, we ought to, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, yield to the authority of God's word in our lives. That way we bless him, we honor him. The words from our mouths actually match with the actions we take. But the enemies of God, well, they spin lies. They try and bring people in to believing what they're saying. And maybe if they do that with enough people, they'll begin to believe them and go against the one who's a threat to them. Doing their bidding of stopping that person and shutting them down. It's all a collective effort. Now, because more people believe me over you, obviously, I'm in the right and not you. And the majority of people are 100% wrong. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be the narrow path. It would be wide. But the path to destruction is, is wide and shallow. This is what they were trying to do to Paul. But Paul was tenacious and wouldn't go down. He refused to go down, and he didn't shut up. He just kept speaking. He kept talking. He spoke the truth regardless of who was doing the accusing or who was interrogating him. It really didn't matter. Felix concluded the arguments by delaying any decision and gave orders to keep Paul in custody until Lysias, the tribune, could come and shed light on the situation. Remember, he was the one that was thrown under the proverbial bus. He was the one that, you know, if he wouldn't have stepped in and saved this man, we could have followed through with justice and Paul would have been done with. But here we are wasting your time, Felix, you know, because he did. Oh, let's wait for let's wait for Lysias, the tribune. and Let's see what he has to say. But he delayed until then. Paul was to have the liberty of having people come uh, and tend to him freely. Verse 22, let's continue says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented. 
from attending to his needs. Now, this is political maneuvering, maneuvering, political maneuvering. It's a delayed decision. It's a strategy. That's what it is. You could say that Felix knew details of Paul's faith, and yet he didn't want to displease the religious leaders, the Jewish people, and therefore made no decision, but said that he wanted to hear what the tribune had to say about everything. This wasn't true. Felix really did not care at all. And we'll see that as we continue and wrap up. Verse 24. 24. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the, pre- for the present. Uh, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Hmm. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. (laughs) So it comes out, right? The truth spoken, but we see here fear in the place of faith. Fear in the place of faith. Overall, Paul was kept in prison in Caesarea uh, for two years. Two years during the time of Felix's rule as governor there. But when Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus to govern in that area, Felix was required at that point, under Roman law, was required to release Paul from prison. Why? Because there was no conviction. But he didn't follow his own Roman law. Why? Because he wanted to appease the Jews and remain in favor with him. That was the bottom line. But it was all at one man's expense. It was all at Paul's expense. You don't think that's happening now? It's, people are so prideful that they'll remain oppressing others because of their pride, even though they know the truth. They, they won't yield to the truth. And it's at the expense of others. That's inhumane. Why would you do that? And yet we see it happening today. You see, people had no value but to further this man, Felix's own power and authority. That was it. They were just little pawns that were used for that very purpose. Well, during that time, Felix had many conversations with Paul, even bringing his wife, Drusilla. Um, By the way, Drusilla didn't have a great past you see, Felix, um, she allowed Felix to seduce her and take her away from her husband. So it was thought that she was very ambitious, but we know that Felix was ambitious too. And so they made a great, um, you could say, power couple. And, um, but they used others um, to get their own way and move up in power and authority. They were both ambitious, but they were both ruthless. But there was a time when Paul addressed them, spoke of Jesus Christ, and three things that he he spoke of, which is noted here. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Quite amazing. Those are topics that you would want to avoid if you have someone 
normally in, in that position. Normally it's just kind of small talk, you know, yeah, you know, I have faith and I believe in Jesus Christ. And, you know, but to, to speak according to Scripture about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, you know, this is putting them in that place to where they need to respond. And what we read here is that it alarmed Felix so much so that he put Paul away. He's like, you know, go away for now. I'll call on you later on. But it says here that he was alarmed. He was struck with fear. These types, when we go through Scripture sometimes, if we're not, number one, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a salvific relationship with Jesus Christ, there should, we should be struck with fear, alarm. Talking about righteousness, we have done outside of Jesus Christ. Talking about self-control, discipline. Well, it's worthless outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ because you can't win your way, gain your way into heaven. Talking about the coming judgment. Well, if I don't choose, there's a coming judgment. In one day, I will face the judge. He is loving, but he is just. He is perfect. Well, he was struck with fear. And Felix sent him away. And he had conversation time and time again, but it was just delayed, delayed. You know, the Lord has conversations with you. Sometimes we come to church and he has a conversation with you. He convicts you. There's this like an awareness, an alarm, a a conviction to where it should lead us to repentance, to confessing, to being humble before the Lord. And yet we put it off. We'll yet have another conversation. For now, I'm going to put you off, Lord. I'm going to put you off, God. I, I really don't want to respond in a way that yields my will and my pride. Maybe, maybe next time. Oh, we'll have other conversations. And perhaps you're looking yourself for a handout. You want him, as Felix, was he was waiting. And it says here, he was waiting for some money. Like, give me some money, Paul, and I'll, maybe I'll let you go free. He was looking for some money. People may be looking for, God, do this and that for me. But I'm not going to yield to your authority. I'm not going to yield to your righteousness. Uh, and I'm definitely not going to be self-disciplined. But knowing that the com- there's a coming judgment, no, maybe tomorrow. But give me today what I want. Let's have another conversation. Well, it doesn't work that way. I'll share this and then we'll close. Remember that Paul was falsely accused. But remember also that he had the opportunity to tell Felix the truth about the world, sin, and judgment. But also a true righteousness that can only be found and known in Jesus Christ. Remember that. So here are some closing words. How about you? As a Christian, will you stay the course and stand in truth no matter what you are falsely accused of? How about those that have heard the truth about sin and judgment and God's grace offered through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you want God to give you something without surrendering your life to him? Really, he could bless you as he's blessed you up to this point. You're still living. He's given you another opportunity to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for 
God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Today is the day of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast. What about you? Instead of rejecting Jesus through delay, my hope and God's desire is that you would come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ and know salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's being offered at this very moment. Will you respond? Paul confessed that he loved the Lord and he believed the word of God. There will be, you see, a resurrection of the just and the unjust. One to eternal glory, the other to eternal condemnation. Choose one. I pray that you make the choice of surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. And then you learn to stand with him. And never be moved. Never compromise. And continue to advance for his glory. Father, we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to fill us to overflowing. We are in desperate need of a clear biblical perspective of our own lives first and secondly, Lord, of everything else. Lord, we need to be tenacious men and women who persevere in the faith encourage others to do the very same thing. Lord, the church needs to stand and be that beacon of light in a dark world that others may know where to run, who to run to, who to cling to, and know that hope and that peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for many There's no hope in anything or anyone else. It's only in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so I pray, Father, that today many will come to faith. Today, Lord, that they will lay down their very lives to know it right before the Father and eternally in Jesus Christ, forgiven of all of our sins. Lord, in knowing salvation by grace through faith. We thank you for this moment that you've given to us. Lord, sometimes we're, we're tired, Lord. But Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, We refuse to give up until you take us home to be with you. Lord, set our feet on solid ground and help us to run. In Jesus' name we pray.